0: Dark Cast Network, out of the shadows, comes the best of indie podcasts. It was early February 1959, high up in the northern Ural Mountains, where nine hikers were found killed due to uncertain circumstances. After the group's bodies were discovered, an investigation by the Soviet authorities quickly determined that they have died of hypothermia. However, several of the victims suffered massive body trauma, including cracks in their skull, missing appendages, and even missing organs. Numerous theories have been put forward to account for the unexpected deaths, which now has become known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. My name is DJ, and this is the Mythical True Crime podcast. <laughs> 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals of the Soviet Union. According to the prosecutor at the time, Tempelov, documents were found in the tent of the expedition suggesting that their name was the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and were possibly dispatched by the local Young Leninist organization. Igor Yatlanov, a 23 year old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute was the leader of the assembled group of nine others for the trip, most of whom were fellow students and peers of the university. The initial group consisted of eight men and two women. Each member was an experienced Grade 2 hiker with scheme tour experience and would have been given a Grade 3 certification upon their return. At the time, grade 3 was the highest certification available at the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse over 300 kilometers or 190 miles. The route was designed by Dyatlov's group to reach the far northern regions of the Svrosk Oblast in the upper streams of the Lazva River. The route was approved by the City Route Commission and a division of the Committee of the Physical culture and sport confirmed the group of 10 people set out on january 8th 1959 the goal of the expedition was to reach the orton the mountain 10 kilometers north of the site where the incident occurs this route estimated to be category 3 was undertaken in february the most difficult time to traverse January 23, 1959, the Dietloff Group was issued their route book, which listed their course as follows, from the number 5 Trail. At the time, the City Committee of Physical Culture and Sport listed and approved for 11 people. The 11th person listed, who was previously certified to go with another expedition of a similar difficulty, but backed out last second. The Dietloff Group left the city at the same day that they received the route book. group arrived by train to Ivdel, a town at the center of the northern province of the Oblast, in the early morning hours of November 25, 1959, at which point they took a truck to Vizai, a lorry village that has last inhabited settlement of the north. While spending the night in Vizai, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. On January 27th, they began their trek towards the Gora Ortenen. In January 28th, one member, Yuri Yudin, who had several health ailments, including rheumatism and congenital heart defects, turned back due to a knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. The remaining nine hikers continued. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of the Highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. The next day, the hikers started to move through the pass it seems they had planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening weather conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to set camp near the slope of the mountain rather than move 1.5 kilometers downhill to the forested area, which would have offered some more shelter from the weather. Yudin speculated... His quote, Dietlov probably did not want to lose the altitude that he had gained, more he decided that practicing camping in the mountain slope. Before leaving that morning, Dietlov had agreed that he would send a telegram to the sports club as soon as the group returned to Visay. It was expected that they would return no later than the 12th of February, but Dietlov had told Juden before he left that it expected it maybe to be longer due to weather. When the 12th passed and no messages were received, there was no immediate reaction as delays for a few days were common with such expeditions. On the 20th of February, travelers' relatives demanded that a rescue operation be made, and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteers and students. Later, teachers and the army and police forces were involved, with planes and helicopters ordered to join the operation. On the 26th of February, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on the Colette Suckeil. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Chevron, student who found in the tent, said, The tent was half torn down, covered with snow, but it was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Investigators said that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints, left by the people wearing only socks or a single shoe, maybe even barefoot, could be followed, leading down the edge to the nearby wood on the opposite side of the pass, 1.5 kilometers to the northeast, after about 500 meters, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest's edge, under the large Siberian pine, researchers found the visible remains of a small fire. That's where they found the first two bodies. Those of Kravanashenko and Doroshenko, shoeless and dressed only in underwear. The branches at the tree were broken five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed to look for something, perhaps the camp. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, that of Dialov, Sala and Slobodin, who died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found at distances of 300, 480 and 630 meters away from that tree. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on 4th of May, under 4 meters of snow, in a ravine 75 meters further into the woods from that pine tree. What was puzzling was that three of the four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs of some of the clothing from those who have died have been removed by the others for use. One student, Dumenina, was wearing Krivonshenko's burned horn trousers, and her left foot and chin were wrapped with a torn jacket. A legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examination quickly found no injuries that had led to their deaths and concluded that they had all had died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but that was not thought to be a fatal wound. An examination of the other four bodies in May shifted the narrative of the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. One had major skull damage. Dubedina and Zoratov, where it had major chest fractures. According to Boris Valenskini, the force required to such, do such damage would have been extremely high, comparable to that of a car crash. Also, most notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with bone fractures, as if they had been subjected to some sort of high level of pressure. All four bodies at the bottom of the creek in the running stream of water had soft tissue damage to their heads and their face. Dubanina was missing her tongue, her eyes, part of her lips, as well as part of her facial tissue, and a fragment of her skull bone, while Zorotov was missing his eyeballs completely. A man named V.A. Vazrov Denny, The forensic expert performing the post-mortem examination judged that these injuries happened post-mortem due to the location of the bodies in the stream. There was initial speculation that many of the indigenous Mansi people, reindeer herders local to the area, attacked and murdered the group for encroaching on their lands. Several Mansi were interrogated but the investigation indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support this hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible, and they showed no signs of hand-to-hand struggles. Although the temperature was very low, around negative 25 to 30 degrees Celsius, with the storm blowing in, and the dead were only partially dressed, some had only one shoe, while others only wore socks. Some were found wrapped with snips of ripped clothing that seemed to have been cut off by those that were already dead. Journalists reporting the available parts of the inquest files claimed that it states the following. Six of the group members died from hypothermia and three to fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby apart from the nine travelers. The tent had been ripped open from within the victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite on their own accord, on foot. Some levels of radiation were found in one victim's clothing. To dispel the theory of the attack of the indigenous people, Vazrav Denny stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could have only been done and caused by human beings, because, quote, The force of the blows had been too strong, and no soft tissue had been damaged. There were released documents that contained no other information about the condition of the skier's internal organs, and there were no survivors. At the time, the official conclusion that the group members had died because of a compelling natural force The inquest officially ceased May 1959 as a result of the absence of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive. After this quick message, we'll be right back. If this is your first time tuning in, I encourage you to subscribe to the show so you can hear all the other episodes as well as what we have coming up in the next few weeks. Many years later, in 1997, it was revealed that the negatives from one of the party members' cameras were kept in a private archive of one of the investigators, Lev Ivanov. The film material was donated to Ivanov's daughter and the Dietlov Foundation. Diaries kept from the hiking party fell into Russia's public domain in 2009. Then, on April 12, 2018, Zolotarev's remains were exhumed on the initiative of journalists in the Russian tabloid newspaper, Pravada. Contradictory results were obtained. One of the experts said that the character of the injuries resembled that of a person knocked down by a car, and the DNA analysis didn't reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. In addition... It turned out that Zolotarev's name was not on the list of those buried at the Ivanovsky Cemetery. Nevertheless, the reconstruction of the face from the exhumed skull matched post-war photographs of Zolotarev, although journalists expressed suspicions that another person was hiding under the name in World War II. In February 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation to the incident, although only three possible explanations were to be considered. An avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane. The possibility of a crime had officially been discounted. Anatoly Gustin summarized in his research book The Prize of State Secrets is Nine Lives, said that some researchers criticised the work for its concentration on the speculative theory of Soviet secret war experiments, but its publication led to the public discussion stimulated by the interest of paranormal. Indeed, many of those who remained silent for 30 years reported new facts about the accident. One of them was the former police officer Lev Ivanov, who led the official inquest in 1959. In 1990, he published an article that included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated that, after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss that claim entirely. In 2000, a regional television company produced the documentary, The Mystery of Dietlov Pass. With the help of the film crew, the writer, Anna Matveena, published a docudrama novella of the same name. A large part of the book includes broad quotations from the official case, diaries of the victims, interviews with the searchers, and other documentaries collected from filmmakers the narrative line of the book details the everyday life and thoughts of a modern woman, an alter ego of the author herself, who attempts to resolve the case. Despite its fictional narrative, her book remains the largest source of documentary materials ever made available to the public regarding this incident. Also, the pages of the case files and other documentaries, such as photocopies and transcripts, were gra- gradually being published on a web forum for enthusiastic researchers. The Dietlov Foundation, founded in 1999 with the help of the Ural State Technical University, led by Yuri Kuntsevich, the foundation's stated aim was to continue the investigation of the case and to maintain the Dietlov Museum to preserve the memory of the dead hikers. On July 1, 2016, a memorial plaque was inaugurated at the Ural's Perm region dedicated to Yuri Yudin, the sole survivor of the expedition group, who had died in 2013. As I said before, a few explanations were given by the Russian government into possibly what happened. First one was an avalanche. On July 11, 2020, A deputy head of the Urals Federal District announced that an avalanche was to be the official cause of death for the Dyatlov group in 1959. Later an independent computer simulation and analysis by the Swiss researchers also suggested that an avalanche was the cause. An excerpt from Douglas Preston in The New Yorker reads, The most appealing aspect of this scenario is that the Dyatlov Party's actions no longer seem irrational. The snow slab, according to Green, would probably have made loud cracks and rumbles as it fell across to the camp, destroying the tent, making an avalanche seem imminent. Researchers also noted that the skiers made an error in the placement of their tent. Everything they did, subsequently, was textbook. They conducted an emergency evacuation that would be safe from the avalanche. They took shelter in the woods. They started a fire. They dug a snow cave. Had they been less experienced, they may have remained in the tent waited to dig it out, and possibly survived. But avalanches are by far the biggest risk in mountains in the winter time. The more experience you have, the more you fear them. The skier's expertise doomed them. Reviewing another explanation, a cessationalist yeti hypothesis, American skeptic Benjamin Radford suggests that the avalanche is more plausible. That the group woke up in a panic, cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance of their tent, or because they were just scared that the avalanche was imminent. Better to have potentially repairable slit in the tent rather than risk being buried alive. They were poorly clothed because they were sleeping. They ran to safety in the nearby woods where trees would have slowed oncoming snow. In the darkness of the night, they got separated into two groups or three groups. One made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others returned to the tent to recover clothing, since the danger had passed. But it was too cold, they all had froze to death. Before they could locate their tent in the darkness, and at some point, the clothes somehow may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four of those bodies were severely damaged, and they were caught in the avalanche and buried under four meters of snow, more than enough to account for the compelling nature force that the medical examiner described. Dubenina's tongue was likely removed by scavengers or ordinary predation around the area. There's also contradictory evidence, evidence that contradicts the avalanche theory, which includes the location of the incident which didn't have any obvious signs of the avalanche, folks say, take place. An avalanche would have left large patterns and certain patterns in the snow and debris in a very wide area. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered with still shallow layer of snow, and had been there, and if an avalanche was sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process that would have damaged the tree line. Also, over a hundred expeditions to that same region had been held since that incident, and no one else has reported conditions that might have created an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely to have such an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions found in a nearby area were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of the winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions. Also, another analysis of the terrain and the slope showed that even if there could have been a specific avalanche to that area and found its way there, its path would have gone past the tent. The tent had collapsed from the side and not in a horizontal direction. Dietloff was an experienced skier, and much older than the rest of his group and even the people studying for their master's certification in ski instruction. Neither of these two men have been, would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. And finally, footprint patterns leading away from the tent are inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine, running in panic from either real or imagined danger. All the footprints leading away from the tent area and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at normal pace. And the latest information we have is from 2021, when a team of physicists and engineers led by Alexander Puzrin published in The Communications Earth and Environment a new model that demonstrated how even relatively small slide of a snow slab on that particular slope would have caused tent damage and injuries consistent with those suffered by the Dialov team. What are your thoughts? After Russia opened the new investigation into the incident, both in 2019, 2020, and then again published in 2021, it all suggests that a type of avalanche could have just explained some of the trekkers' injuries. A mountain pass in that area was later named Dietlov Pass in memory of the group. In many languages, the incident is now referred to as the Dietlov Pass Incident. However, the incident occurred about 1,700 meters away on the eastern slope of the mountain. A prominent rock outcrop in the area now serves as a memorial to the group, which is located 500 meters to the southeast, of the actual site to the final camp. I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. And please don't forget to follow and subscribe and consider supporting the show. I have a new subscription model which allows you to monetarily support me so I can come out more often with newer stories and better content. Again, thank you for listening. And this is DJ. And you've been listening to the Mythical True Crime Podcast. Thank you very much for listening tonight and being part of the Mythical True Crime community, hosted by me, DJ. Subscribe to Facebook, Twitter, and and Instagram to get your weekly updates. And if you like what you hear, consider subscribing. Subscribing will directly support the show and the work that I'm doing. If you'd like to be a new supporter, consider clicking the link in the description box below. For less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help me continue to make great content for listeners everywhere. No commitment. Cancel anytime. This has been the Mythical True Crime Podcast. My name is DJ. Good night.